Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Nader Mansour and I pray this message will draw you closer to Jesus. The, the title of our study this morning, if we were to give it a title, is The Father and Son Covenant. The Father and Son Covenant. And in looking at the, at the plan of salvation, which is the gospel, it is really expressed in the scriptures many times as a covenant or an agreement between the Father and the Son is what I want to focus on today. Many times we look at the gospel as some kind of an agreement or plan that God has towards us. Uh, but we want to see what the scripture reveals as we find that this covenant is really between the Father and the Son. That's why I've entitled it as such, the Father and Son Covenant. And uh, the Father and Son Covenant, this, this uh, covenant of salvation, is really the, the foundation and basis of every other covenant that there is in the Scriptures. There, is a, there are a number of covenants that the Bible talks about, many. Uh, there's only one saving covenant. This is Father and Son covenant. There are many other covenants that uh, where God promised blessings and different things, but only one covenant actually saves, and it's this one. So I want to focus on that. I want to just keep this particular point in mind because I find that today, many times, there is a lot of confusion over this question of the covenants, particularly the ones we're familiar with, most common ones, is the Old and the New Covenant and their relationship to each other. And uh, there is a variety of different opinions and ideas, and they're not all the same. And as a result of a misunderstanding or confusion over the covenants, it uh, automatically causes a misunderstanding and a confusion over the gospel and the plan of salvation and how God saves us and so on. So today I want to explore a little bit, a little bit of these aspects, but I just want to focus on this one covenant that saves this father and son covenant. Uh, we'll begin with a familiar verse, John 1, 1. John chapter 1 and verse 1. Well, the first three verses actually, but we'll just start with verse 1. John chapter 1, verses 1 down to 3. And in this familiar passage, we know very well what it says, I guess, so as soon as we start reading it, we'll remember it. But it says here, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The Word, of course, is Christ, and it tells us here that He was with God the Father, and He possessed the same nature as His Father. He had the God nature. But verse 3 says, all things were made by Him, and we always quote that to indicate that Christ was the medium or the, the agency through which God created everything, and that is very true, as it says a little later. But not only were things created by Him, but all things, including God's plans, God's purposes, were through Christ. I want us to keep that point in mind, because... This also includes God's covenant of salvation. God's plan to save my, mankind was also through Christ because it says here, all things were made by him or through him. And uh, we see here in John 1, 1, there is only how many beings? Only two. The word, which is Christ and God namely God the Father. And there were no other beings there in the beginning, according to this passage, when everything was made. There was only the Father, and He made everything through or by His Son. And this is why I, I refer to it as the Father and Son covenant. There were these two. And uh, another passage we're familiar with, as well as in Zechariah chapter 6. Let's go there. And this is Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 6. And uh, I know we're familiar with this verse, but I want to also pinpoint something in it. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. This is a messianic prophecy. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. And notice what it says here. And speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. This messianic prophecy, of course, is uh, speaking about this man who will come, whose name is the branch. Who is that referring to? That's none other than Christ. 
he's referred to here as the branch. And then it lists a number of things that he would accomplish, that he would do when he would come as a man. He will build, it says, the temple of the Lord. Not only that, he will bear the glory. He will sit and roll upon the throne and he shall be a priest upon the throne. So part of this plan, part of this uh, covenant, some of the terms of that covenant are revealed in this passage, in this prophecy. That Christ would come as a man, his name would be the branch, and that he would grow up. And uh, he would be a priest one day. He would build the temple of the Lord, and he would sit upon his throne. And then it says, the council of peace shall be between them both. This council of peace is another way we express this covenant, this saving covenant of salvation. It's between how many beings? Two, the Father and the Son. So in council, before anything was made, this council of peace or this plan of salvation, it was designed and planned by the Father and the Son. And certain terms and conditions were agreed upon and uh, enacted and Christ promised to fulfill and accomplish these, uh, you know, these uh, conditions. Now, interestingly enough, when Zechariah wrote this verse, we don't often think of that, but when Zechariah wrote this verse, what is the tense that he uses when he refers to the Council of Peace at the very last part there in verse 13? Future. It is future, right? He says the Council of Peace, it doesn't say it was, it says shall be bit between them both. Have you ever thought about that? In other words, this Council of Peace is not fully realized or accomplished until Christ comes and fulfills these conditions. Generally, we read this verse and we apply it in the past. Now, in a secondary sense, yes, when Christ comes and accomplishes all these conditions, then that council of peace between the Father and the Son will be fulfilled, indicating that it was both those two that planned it at the very beginning. But Zechariah here is talking about it being future, that one day this council of peace will be between them both, when this man comes as the branch, when he builds the temple of the Lord, when he sits on the throne as a priest, then will be fulfilled and realize all these conditions of this council of peace. Very significant to note the tense here. Uh, it's just, you know, I know we use this verse a lot and, and it's, a tr it's, it's correct, but we, we miss the point that there's something future. As far as Zechariah was concerned, when he wrote this verse, this prophecy, the council of peace was not yet accomplished or fulfilled. It was planned. It was promised. It was revealed that it would happen. This is one such revelation, but it was not yet fulfilled. It was something that he and everyone else, uh, of course, uh, believers, that is, was looking forward to. And uh, this office of Christ as a savior who would be a priest and who would be an intercessor is part of this particular plan. Of course, you know, like I said, in this council, the father and son, you know, talked about things and creating mankind and other creatures and should man sin. Uh, Christ volunteered to give his life as a ransom to save mankind. He promised his life and the father accepted this promise and based on that, the Father promised to accept and bless all those who accept Christ as a result of this deal or this contract or this covenant. Now, when we talk about the word covenant, maybe I should clarify here what, what the word covenant means. Uh, usually when we talk about covenant, we understand that the most common definition perhaps is that it is an agreement between two parties with some certain conditions. It's like a contract. Now that is true many times. It is an agreement between both parties or two parties, but it is not always so. A covenant can also mean a promise or an oath or a pledge. For example, when, uh, when Noah uh, and his family came out of the ark after the flood, God made a covenant, the Bible says in Genesis 9. God made a covenant with Noah and with all the animals and all the creatures of the earth. And this covenant was what? A promise that God would never again destroy the earth by a flood. What was Noah's part in this covenant? Nothing, right? All he had to do was believe. If he believed the covenant, that's it. If he believed the promise. So it's important to keep in mind that a covenant is not always a contract between two parties where there are certain conditions. Sometimes it is, not always. Uh, it just helps us to, to understand a few things. So. Another word for covenant that the scripture uses many times, and we refer to it as such, is testament. 
So all these, all these words carry uh, a similar and sometimes even the same meaning, testament or covenant or an agreement or a promise. And of course, this promise of salvation, this covenant, this father and son covenant, this council of peace, through time was revealed to, to the believers, uh, beginning with Eden. Of course, the first promise of salvation was given there to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15, where it talked about the seed of the woman that will one day crush the serpent's head. That was a revelation of this covenant between the Father and the Son. God was indicated, indicating that he was, he was going to do something. Let's go to Acts 3 and see how else this was revealed. Acts chapter 3 and verse 25. Acts chapter 3 and verse 25. <clears throat> and here we see another point of revelation of this covenant. Of salvation. Acts 3 and verse 25. And here it says, Peter preaching, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. This is the second, or I guess not, well, if you count them, but this is another, let's just say, this is another revelation that God was telling mankind about this covenant of salvation, about this plan of salvation. He revealed it this time to Abraham, and he revealed it in this covenant when he said, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. We're talking about this one covenant that saves. In, the, in Christ, and when Christ will come, he would bring a blessing for the whole world. And the blessing, of course, is none other than the blessing of eternal life. That's what he was indicating. And Peter was quoting this and basically telling the, the Jews that what, who they had rejected Christ was a fulfillment of this promise of, or of this covenant that God had made uh, and indicated, revealed that to Abraham. This is the gospel covenant or the gospel plan or the everlasting covenant. Uh, there are a number of terms that, that we used to refer to that with. <clears throat> Let's go to Galatians chapter 3 and just look a little bit more now closer at this covenant. And maybe we'll discover some interesting aspects. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. Again, Paul repeats the same thing that Peter said in his letter here. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. And he says, And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be Blessed. blessed. So Peter called it the covenant that God made to our fathers. Paul here calls it the gospel. This is why we're talking about it as the covenant of salvation, or it is really the, the gospel covenant or the gospel promise. And here he repeats the same thing. He says, in thee shall all nations be blessed. And when God was speaking this to Abraham, Paul then goes on to make a very significant point in that he was not referring to Abraham as such. He was revealing something to Abraham. He was not telling Abraham that he had any part to play in this particular covenant, as we shall see in a minute. He was just simply informing him of this covenant between the father and the son. All Abraham had to do with this covenant was what? Believe it. He had no part. There were no conditions placed on Abraham to contribute or to assist God in bringing about the fulfillment of this covenant. This is a very significant point to keep in mind. Uh, because we're talking here about this everlasting uh, covenant. As a matter of fact, we know that Abraham tried to help out because, you know, things were taking a while and he was, wasn't having a child. And it caused all kinds of problems. And, uh, and God said, no, Abraham, this is not how we're going to do it. I, I meant what I said. And God gave him a miracle child uh, for that. Let's look at verse 15 and 16, same chapter, and then see specifically what Paul is trying to tell us about this promise. Verse 15 and 16, he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And so here the point Paul is making is very simple. He says, look, when God was speaking to Abraham and making a promise. He says, in your seed, he was actually speaking to who? 
to Christ. He was making a promise to Christ. This is what the point that Paul is making in this particular verse is. Now, I don't want us to miss this. God was not making a deal with Abraham. God was informing Abraham of the covenant or the deal that he already had with his son. He was just bringing Abraham up today. Say, Abraham, look, this is, this is the covenant. This is the plan. In your seed, there is this blessing. In other words, there is a promised blessing to your seed. And Paul says when he was saying this, he was speaking to Christ. So the covenant promise of blessing is really a blessing to who? First and foremost, it is to Christ. It is the Father promising to bless Christ with this blessing that will include all nations, all kindreds and tongues. That's why I'm referring to it as the Father and Son covenant. And so I don't want us to miss this point because it will help us understand a lot of things as we go along. But basically, if we put it in, in layman's terms, it was like this. God was telling Abraham, Abraham, in my son who's going to come from your seed, I have placed all the blessings that this world needs. He's going to be born in your family. He's going to come one day and through him, everyone will be blessed. This is my plan, Abraham. This is why I what I have intended to do for mankind. Do you believe that, Abraham? And Abraham believed God, the Bible says, and it was accounted to him for Righteousness. This is the gospel promise. Abraham's response is how any other human should respond to the gospel. Now, the reason why I'm going, maybe, you know, uh, covering some ground that we're a bit familiar with and, and just keeping it simple, because this is the foundation for later on when we come to, to the New Testament and the New Covenant and all these aspects. Uh, it's not different to us than it was to Abraham. And when Paul, in the previous verse, verse, verse 14, when he says, uh, when we make a contract, he says, you know, in verse uh, 14, sorry, verse 15, he says, though it be a man's covenant, yet it be, if it be confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth thereto. He's saying, look, among us here, if we make a covenant or an agreement between men, once it's confirmed, once you sign, you can't go in and change the, the, the terms, thank you, or the conditions. Once it's signed, that's it. And the point he's making is this. When God made a promise to Abraham, he confirmed it by an oath. Therefore, there is nothing that we can do to add to the terms of this covenant or to take away from the terms of this covenant, the covenant between the father and the son. Again, another important point to keep in mind. We'll come to it as well. And so all through the Old Testament, God revealed this truth, this covenant in a number of different ways. Let's go to another verse, Isaiah 42, and then we'll, we'll look at it. The other covenant that God put in place, Isaiah chapter 42, and we want to look at verse 6. I find this verse quite interesting because I guess we don't think of the covenant in this way. But here it is speaking about Christ, referring to Christ. Isaiah 42 and verse 6 says, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee and give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles. So according to this verse, Christ is to be given as what? As a covenant, right? A covenant of the people and a light of the Gentiles. We know this is a prophecy about Christ. If you read it in context, you find that this is what it's talking about. So in other words, the covenant of salvation is not a set of instructions or conditions or terms. The covenant of salvation, according to this verse, is actually a person. Is that right? Christ is this covenant. And when he comes, he is the fulfillment and the embodiment of God's plan of salvation. This plan that him and his father had put in place before everything was made. And so this is why it says here, I will give you or I'll give thee for a covenant of the nations. So when he comes, he is the covenant. I guess this is a different way to look at the covenants. Uh, perhaps we don't think of the covenants that way, but that's what this particular verse says. He would fulfill all these specifications that he and his father spoke about. Again, I want us to keep this in mind because it will make a lot, a lot more sense when we go to the new covenant. But I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at another way that God revealed his saving covenant, this covenant between him and his son. There was another way in the Old Testament that God revealed this plan. It's a more detailed and more elaborate way that had a lot more details revealing information about this covenant. Of course, uh, this is when God made another covenant 
on Mount Sinai with Israel, what we commonly refer to as the Old Covenant. A lot of people, you know, get a little bit confused about the Old Covenant as to its purpose, why it was given, uh, how long is it going to stay, and what elements of it are still valid or not, and all these things. It helps us when we see it, hopefully, in the bigger picture, in the bigger uh, perspective. Let's go to Galatians. Oh, we're still in Galatians. Oh, no, we're not. We're in Isaiah. Let's go back to Galatians 3 and just see here what Paul says about this particular point. Galatians chapter 3, and we will look at verse 17. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 17. And here Paul says, And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of non-effect. I want to explain this verse because sometimes, again, it's misunderstood. Uh, I might use our little board here. Okay, so we have... Abraham, God made a promise to Abraham. That's what this verse is saying, correct? Mm -hmm. It says, God made a promise to Abraham, this covenant. It was confirmed before of God in Christ. How did God confirm this promise that he made to Abraham? The Bible says he confirmed it by an oath. So when God promised Abraham, and then he said, Abraham, I'm going to surely do this. I swear by myself I will do this. That's the confirmation of this promise. He confirmed it by an oath. God was revealing to Abraham this covenant of salvation. And then he says, and then the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of manifest. What's he referring to here? What came 430 years after? The law. So what are we talking about when we say the law? Usually when we say the law, in particular certain, uh, you know, if we have a particular background, we think of the Ten Commandments. This is not what Paul is talking about here only. This does include the Ten Commandments, but he's particularly referring to the event that occurred at Mount Sinai, when God gave a whole system of law that included types and shadows and instructions and statutes and judgments and commandments, as well as the Ten Commandments. And his point is, this law, this system that came in here cannot disannul or add anything to this promise of salvation that God made with Abraham. So then the natural question is, what point is there for this? If this is the plan of salvation complete, what does this have to say? What the, why did God even put this? You see, this was never designed to contribute or add anything to the plan of salvation. It was actually a revelation of more details about that plan of salvation. So we're going to, to see uh, a little bit of that, hopefully, as we go. But I want to keep this point as well in mind. This is what we refer to as the Old Covenant. And here Paul gives us a specific point in time as to when the Old Covenant actually began or commenced. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, and we'll look at verse 1. Hebrews 9, 1. <clears throat> Paul here says, Then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Here he's referring to it in Galatians. He refers to it as the law. Okay, there are a few names in Scripture given for this covenant. The law. Here he calls it the first covenant, correct? He says it had ordinances of divine service, divinely instituted instructions and ordinances, and a worldly or an earthly sanctuary. This is what that had. And then in the next chapter, chapter 10 and verse 1, we get a little bit of an insight as to what else was contained in this covenant or this law system. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 1 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. So this system, this 
law or this covenant, the Bible here tells us it had a shadow. And it had a shadow of good things that were to come. So here in this shadows, in the system of shadows, God revealed certain details, more details than he had revealed before about this covenant. This was the good thing that was to come. It hadn't come yet. And so in the meantime, God instituted a, uh, this system as a, as a revelation and as a deeper, uh, you know, explanation of the details of this everlasting covenant. That's why we see here God instituted a temple, a priesthood, things that he hadn't revealed before, which help us today understand the work of Christ as our high priest in the heavenly temple. That's, that was the purpose. That's what a, a shadow uh, does and so it was as a compacted prophecy so to speak of that covenant uh, of the new covenant that was to come now the the bible tells us that this covenant was made with israel at sinai by god himself the reason why i emphasize that is because sometimes today some people uh, get confused over that and i've heard the idea that this covenant was actually uh, Israel's idea, or it was the people who made this covenant, not God. But I want to look at some scripture, and then I'll, I'll explore perhaps why this, this idea is present. Let's look at Exodus 34 and verse 27. Exodus, we'll go now to the Old Testament. Exodus 34 and verse 27. And there are many scriptures that say this, this will do. This is one representative verse. Exodus 34, verse 27. And the Lord said unto Moses, Write thou these words, for after the tenor of these words, I have made a covenant with thee and with Israel. Whose idea was this covenant? It was God's idea. What words was Moses instructed to write in this book? The words that God had said, spoken, the things that God had revealed to Moses. Publicly, the first thing that God revealed was the Ten Commandments, and then privately to Moses, he revealed a whole more, a whole, a whole list of details and instructions. And then God says, listen, Moses, write all this down, because these essentially are the terms and conditions of this covenant that I am making with you and with Israel. This is an important point to keep in mind, because remember, this system is given as a type or as a shadow. The person making the covenant here is the same one who is making or made this covenant, which will later come, as we said, into effect once it is uh, fulfilled. But that's, that's the point here. This is a type. And uh, we don't want to, we don't want to, uh, to miss that. Uh, and then <clears throat> the same person, like I said, God made the covenant with Abraham and God's now making this covenant with Moses and with the children of Israel. Now, the response of the children of Israel, this is many times the reason why people say, well, the children of Israel responded and said, remember what they said? All that the Lord had spoken, we shall do or we will do. Was that a good response or a bad response? What do you think? Both answers exist. Let's put it this way. Was this a response that God wanted to hear? Or did God expect them to respond this way? And you'll find in the scriptures, it's very clear. The answer is yes. Because how else would they have responded? God came to Moses and told him in Exodus 19, says, listen, if you obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you the best people and best nation in the world. What kind of response would you give if you heard that? You would say, yes, we will do it. Okay, well, tell us, what do we need to do? We will do it. So this was the response of the people. As a matter of fact, the Bible also tells us that God says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would indeed keep their promise. Do it. They didn't do it. And this is where some people say, well, because the people promised, but they couldn't do it, and so it was really the people who turned this covenant into a contract between two parties, but God did not intend it so. That is not the case if you read Exodus 19. Because remember, this was not a saving covenant. This is where many times, this is what throws people off. This was not a saving covenant in any way, shape, or form. This was to reveal 
more details about this saving covenant. You with me? And so the people along the way, they misunderstood and they turned the instructions that God gave in this covenant, this first covenant, into the means whereby they could be saved or could obtain salvation and favor of God. And it became a system of works. And we have to also keep that in mind because this is another problem that, of course, exists today. When God gave Abraham the promise of salvation, there were no conditions as to what Abraham had to do to obtain that salvation. So this is why this covenant cannot add any new conditions or requirements that were not included here. And yet the people misunderstood that. This misunderstanding is still present uh, today to a large degree. Let's look at another aspect of this covenant, Hebrews chapter 9. Why do we call this the first covenant? Hebrews chapter 9. And verse 18 and 19. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 18 and 19. He says, Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and of goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people. So this helps us understand why it's actually called the first covenant. Because after God spoke his words, and then Moses recorded them in the book. He read them to the people, and then he did something. There was a very important ceremony, the ratification ceremony, where this verse refers to it as uh, dedicated, right? That's the word that's used here. A dedication or a ratification or sealing this covenant. So at one point, it was actually a day or two just after. Uh, these things were spoken. I'm going to put a big R here. I'm going to write the whole thing. This was the ratification of the covenant. Paul is essentially saying, look, even this covenant, which was not a covenant of salvation, before it was effective, before the, the, the compact was sealed, there had to be a sacrifice offered, and using blood, the, the covenant had to be ratified or made good or made valid. That's what that word means. Or confirmed. <laughs> And it was a number of days after that. And this is why this covenant, which is also the old covenant, this is why it's referred to as the first covenant. Now, this covenant of the Father and the Son, the covenant of salvation, was first. It was promised to Abraham. But while Abraham was, and everyone was waiting for the fulfillment of the promise, God instituted another covenant. And then he ratified this covenant. And because this, this covenant was ratified here, before this one was fulfilled, it's referred to as the first covenant. But it is not first in point of time as far as how it was revealed. It is first in point of ratification. You with me? Uh, just so we can clarify the terms here, because if, if, if someone is not familiar with them, it can throw people off. Uh, and this, again, was a type or an example of the same thing that would happen with this everlasting covenant, the father and son covenant that was promised to Abraham, as, as we shall see. Now, another point to keep in mind, it was after the covenant was ratified and God revealed more information to, to Moses that we have the beginning here of the temple being built. And with the temple, of course, comes the priesthood. The Aaronic or Davidical priesthood with Aaron being the high priest. The law is revealed. God's instructions are revealed. It is ratified. And then the priesthood commences. Very important parallel because that's exactly how the new covenant was also fulfilled. With a different, uh, of course, priesthood and temple and so on. Let's look also at Galatians 3.19 and look at God's purpose as to how the duration, we'll look at the duration of this old covenant. Galatians 3 and verse 19. Galatians 3 verse 19. Paul asks the question I guess we all asked. Wherefore then serveth the law? 
And we're talking about the law, he's talking about this here. He just made the point, he says, look, the promise that was made to Abraham, nothing coming after can disannulate or make it invalid. This is the promise of salvation. Then he asks the question that he anticipates a question that people will think, say, well, what's the point of this? So this is what he's saying. What's the point of this? What does, what then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So the reason why this was added was what? Because of? Transgressions of sin. The people were sinners. They did not realize God's standard of righteousness. He says, here it is. And he revealed it to them. And in so doing, he was revealing details about how he would save them from sin in types and in shadows. He was revealing to them how one day he would accomplish salvation. And then he says, this law was added because of transgression until something would happen. What would happen? Until the seed would come. Which seed? The seed that was promised to Abraham here, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, which is Christ. So in other words, until Christ would come and fulfill what was promised to Abraham, God instituted the system of types and shadows. So it was as a signpost to point to Christ. Of course, when Christ came, we're going to put that here. We're going to put that in But when Christ came, we're going to symbolize that by a cross. And uh, this was the purpose of this until the seed should come, till the seed. Now, it says, until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Which promise is he referring to? This promise. What was the promise? In you, all nations will be blessed. Correct? That's his identifying the seed. Remember the seed, the one that, that the promise was made to. When that seed comes, that's when this system was to stand until, or to last until the coming of the seed. <clears throat> now the seed, of course, is how many? Only one. Seed is not referring to people, and Paul makes that point. He says, seed, it does not say seeds as of many, but one. Another very, very important point as to the timing of certain things and when they will take place. That's why scripture says uh, in the New Testament, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness' sake. And when it says he's the end of the law, there the word in the Greek actually means he's the, he's the object of the law. And so this served as, as a road sign to point to the coming of Christ. Now, I want to bring out another point here and maybe ask a question. And this is another confusing point. Hopefully, we'll be able to clarify it. Why did the Old Covenant fail? You heard this question asked? Why the Old Covenant failed? And usually the answer that's given is because the people failed to keep it. Correct? You might have heard this or you might have not, but it is out there. I want to I put it to you that the Old Covenant did not fail. The Old Covenant ended because it was given for a particular duration. The Old Covenant was not dependent on the obedience of the people as far as it being serving its purpose. The obedience of the people would bring them the blessings promised in this covenant. But it would not be the condition on the success or failure of the covenant. And like I said, uh, if the people, I'll put this scenario to you. If the people kept this covenant perfectly, would it have come to an end or not? It still would have come to an end because it was given until the seed should come. And so just this helps us helps, helps illustrate the point that the, the duration of the covenant was not dependent on the people's faithfulness or faithlessness. This was a secondary point as far as them receiving those blessings or not. But the duration of the covenant, God had a plan, had a purpose, and he put it in place. And so when the time was fulfilled, that covenant came to an end, regardless of the people, whether they had kept it or not. Too often we focus on the people and we make God's plans subservient to what the people did or didn't do. And so we just want to make sure that that's, that that's clear. And so it was temporary from the start. 
That's how God had instituted. And it was never designed to be eternal because God had this one saving covenant already in place. He didn't need any others. And uh, it was <clears throat> to serve as a guide and as a prophecy and as a type, as a shadow, as a schoolmaster and as an instructor in what God's standard of righteousness is to point out the sinfulness of sin. Now let's look at, uh, at one particular verse that helps illustrate this point. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18 and 19. Because this is the thing, many times we look at this covenant as having a problem, and the problem with the covenant was the people. I want to show, I want us to see just what Paul says here. Hebrews 7, 18 and 19. Let me turn here with you. And this is what it says, verse 18. Speaking about the, the priesthood there uh, before it, he says in verse 18, For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Verse 19, For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. What's Paul saying here? He says this, this law, this commandment, had a problem. What was the problem in it, in verse 18? It was weak. And what else? And it was unprofitable. What's he talking about? He's talking about this. This system that God instituted called the law or the first covenant or the old covenant. According to Paul, he says it was weak and it was unprofitable. Now, don't get me wrong. He's not talking about the people here. He's talking about the contract itself. Now, this is where some people have a problem and say, well, hold on. You know, God made this and everything that God makes is perfect how can he suggest that it is unprofitable or weak? It must have been the people. But that's not what Paul is saying. The law itself was weak and unprofitable. And to prove that, he says in verse 19, his, his, his proof is it could make what? How much? Perfect. Nothing perfect. He says, for the law made nothing perfect. So this is where the law was weak and unprofitable because it was never designed to make anything perfect. It was given as a shadow. The problem is, Paul is writing here to people who are still stuck on a lot of the things in this system. And Paul is telling them, listen, we have the better one here already. Why are you still stuck on this system? This system was weak compared to the real thing. This system was unprofitable compared to the real thing. This system could not make perfect. It could not save. It was never intended to do any of these things. That's his point. He's contrasting this old covenant with God's saving covenant or the new covenant, God's plan of salvation. Now, no doubt, don't get me wrong, the people were faithless. There's no question about it. You know, many times the Bible says, you know, they couldn't enter into the promised land because of unbelief. Entering into the promised land was one of the promises in that covenant. They could not enter in because of unbelief. You know, they heard the gospel, but they did not mix it with faith. And so they did not benefit. They went about setting up their own righteousness by works. So they turned the whole thing into a works program, salvation by works, which is something God never intended with this particular covenant. He had a much better plan that he had given to Abraham, the promise of salvation. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 9. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 9. Speaking now of Christ and this transition point, it says here, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. So what's he talking about here? When Christ came to do God's will, one of the things that he would do, it says here, he would take away the first, the first what? The first covenant that he might establish the second. So according to this verse, are the covenants consecutive? The answer is yes. So much so that in order to establish the second, he has to take away the first. So here we have the first covenant. So here we're going to put the second covenant. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 10. Then we will see as well as far as its ratification point. So. This is why the Old Covenant came to an end, because the coming of Christ brought its purpose to completion. And so when Christ came, he took away the first in order to 
establish the second. So I want to ask you a thinking question. If you maintain the first, does that in any way have an impact on the second? Because think about it. He had to take away the first to establish the second. Otherwise, the first was kind of like in the way. In order to establish the second, he had to remove that out of the way. So, so long as that remains in the way, it obstructs or it blocks the second. Now, Christ did this very graphically when he died on the cross. And we know the veil in the temple was rent into two from top to bottom. This was him taking away the first that he might establish the second. So what did the Jews do? They sewed up the curtain and they kept on going. And so to a large degree, they still were not able to see or comprehend that the second was already here because they had their eyes still on the first. This was a large problem that hindered a lot of the Jews from realizing what Christ had accomplished. Now, there's another point I want to also bring out before we go to the ratification of this covenant. And this is in Galatians chapter 4. Let's go there. And this is something as well that I have heard a number of times. And here's the reason for it. Galatians 4, verses 22 down to 26. Galatians chapter 4, verse 22 to 26. And it says here, For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. That's Ishmael and Isaac. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by promise. Which things are an allegory? For these two are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth the bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. Paul here is using another application for the covenants, and he refers to it as an allegory, right? What's the word allegory mean? Like a representation, right? We have a very famous Christian allegory in the story of the Pilgrim's Progress, which is representative of the Christian journey, written in you know, uh, in pictures and kind of a language and portrayed in a way that gives you a deeper meaning. That's what, that's what an allegory is. So Paul here is saying basically this. The two covenants also apply as an allegory to Isaac and to Ishmael in that one of them was born after the flesh, one of them is born after the spirit. One was by the works and one was by promise. He's saying this illustrates for us these two covenants. And so when we look at the covenants as an allegory or as a mindset, the old covenant represents how we relate to God by a works program. You with me? The new covenant represents how we would relate to God as a faith relationship. That's his point that he's making here. And so if I was to do a, a mini timeline up here, just so... We have here the new covenant, one's up here, and the old covenant, and this is as an allegory. This is the beginning from Eden to Eden, okay? That's the whole stream of time. So the covenants applied as an allegory, they represent a mindset or a heart condition of how we relate to God. We can have an old covenant mindset and be living anywhere in time if you relate to God on a works basis. A very good early example of that is in the garden just after the fall with Cain and Abel. Okay, Abel had an old covenant mindset, even though the old covenant was not yet instituted, but as an allegory, that's what he represents. He came to God with the works of his own hands. Abel, on the other hand, related to God by faith. He trusted in the coming Savior. He had the new covenant, faith-based approach to God. So this is where some people get confused because when we talk about the covenants, the covenants run parallel when we look at them as an allegory or as a mindset or a way that we relate to God. But as far as their existence in time, this is how the covenants are. And it's because sometimes we focus on the one, we get confused by the other. They do not deny each other. One is how they exist in time. One is how they exist as an allegory. 
In other words, you and I could be living here after the cross, and we could still relate to God with an old covenant mindset, even though this covenant is finished, if we relate to God by a works-based uh, approach. You with me? Or we could have Abraham, for example, living here before this covenant promise was fulfilled, but he relates to God by faith, and he has a new covenant approach, a faith-based approach. You with me? So this is as far as the personal application. But we can't use that to deny the time elements that exist in the covenants because this actually helps us appreciate the mechanics of the plan of salvation and when certain things took place and occurred. <coughs> and so this is why he said, when he came, he took away the first that he may establish the second. What does establish the second mean? Ratified, exactly the parallel of what we found here. And so at this point, this really served as the ratification point because this is when the blood was shed. Interestingly enough, we look at a few parallels here. First of all, God spoke the law here, and then through Moses, he revealed more information. Moses, in this system, served as the mediator between God and man. Here, God revealed, he didn't speak the law. The law was lived in the life of Christ. It was not a written revelation, it was actually a visible manifestation of the law all through this time. And then it was ratified, just like after it was spoken, written, and then it was ratified. Then it was ratified with the death of Christ on the cross. And after the ratification, then we have the temple service and the priesthood commencing. And after the ratification, Christ went to heaven. And then for the first time, he began his role as a high priest for his people, ministering in the heavenly sanctuary. And so they follow the order here, follows the same order that God had revealed here. This is what God had done. He was basically telling them when these things would happen. When Moses sprinkled the people in the book, we have a parallel for that here a few days later. On the day of, I put here a big P, for the day of Pentecost, when all the people were sprinkled, the believers, they were sprinkled with what? With the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to see what that is all about in a minute. So, so let me extend this a little bit here, just so we can, we can see. All right, let's look at an interesting verse as far as this ratification of the new covenant. Luke 22, 20, and we're almost there. Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. This verse never hit me before until I, I saw something one day I had never seen before. And this is a very familiar verse. As soon as we start reading, we say, oh yeah, I know this verse. Luke 22, 20. This is the Last Supper. Jesus speaking with his disciples. He says, likewise also the cup after supper, he took of course, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you. Here is Christ speaking Thursday night, right? Just before he dies in the Last Supper. He takes the cup and he says, this, is, this cup is the New Testament. What's another word for testament? Covenant. So he's talking about the New Covenant. Now he's talking about this promise he had made with Abraham, the deal that him and his father had from the beginning. At this point, it's about to be ratified in, in the next day. So he's telling them, this is the cup of the New Testament, the New Covenant. And then he says what? In my blood. Now stop there and think for a minute because I, like I said, I didn't realize that before in this verse. According to Jesus, where is the New Covenant contained? In his blood, correct? That's what he told them. It was a symbol, right? What does the blood signify? Life. So Jesus is telling them, listen, this cup represents my blood. In this blood, in this life, is the new covenant. The new covenant is the life of Jesus Christ. That's what he says, right? That's why in Isaiah he said, I have given thee as a covenant for the people, or of the people. Christ is the covenant. And in detail, if you want to go even a little more in detail, his life is where this covenant is, the new covenant. Now, to me, this put a whole different perspective on things because we never think of the covenant this way. We think of the covenant as the deal between us and God and salvation. All these things, all these elements, all these blessings of the new covenant 
are contained in the life of Jesus Christ. And on the last night with his disciples, he's basically telling them, take and drink this blood, because in this blood is this covenant that I came from heaven to be a man, to die in order to accomplish for you. Very, very significant point. The life of Christ is this new covenant. This is where it is contained. This is the active ingredient of the new covenant. That's where all the blessings that God promised Abraham are contained in the life. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9 and again look at another verse. We looked at the point, but I just want to see the verse for it. Hebrews chapter 9, in verse 16 and 17. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 16 and 17. And here again the apostle says, for where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is of force after men are dead. Otherwise, it is of no strength at all while the testator liveth. Now, if we apply this, if he talks about a testament here, again, we're talking about a covenant. In other words, he's saying, when there is a testament, unlike when, when you know, when you make your will and testament, when you leave your will, it goes into effect when? When you die, not before, correct? This is the point he's making. He's using something people will be familiar with. He says, a testament is a force only after people are dead. Therefore, also, this testament or this covenant also came into force when? After the testator died. Who is the testator? Christ. And what was his will and testament? What had he promised? His life. With his father, he promised the father, he says, I'm going to give them my life. That's his will. So the testator Christ, when he laid down his life, that's what makes this covenant now, according to this verse, of force or effective. So during this whole period here, I'm going to draw a line. This covenant was un unratified, correct? It was promised. It was revealed and prophesied, but it was not yet ratified. From this point on, this covenant is now ratified or of force. And that's the everlasting covenant. So the everlasting covenant has two very distinct stages. The stage of promise, where it was revealed and uh, spoken to people, but it was not yet. Ratified. God had told Abraham, one day your seed will come. And when your seed will come, he will bring about this blessing that is promised. And so this is how people would be saved in the Old Testament time. If they had faith in this promise of salvation. Because this is the whole length or the scope of the everlasting covenant. In the same way, even people living here in the Old Covenant time, if they believed the promise made to Abraham, they understood it and they exercised faith in the promised land to come. In other words, they understood the symbols of what they were presenting and offering. That's how they would have been saved. They would not have been saved because they obeyed this law. You with me? There's only one saving covenant, this everlasting covenant of the Father and the Son. And then at this point, something happened. The covenant now took on the ratification that Christ accomplished. Now it was of course. A lot of the blessings that God had promised Abraham now came into effect because Christ had ratified the covenant. And this is why this serves its purpose. It no longer needs to point to it now, it is here. And this is where we are living in the time of this ratified covenant. Two very distinct stages of the one same saving covenant. Now, the reason why I'm explaining it in, in detail like this, because hopefully it will help us appreciate the whole mechanics of, of salvation. This should clear up a lot of different confusions that exist uh, today among us when we look at how God has set up this plan of salvation. And so this is why when Christ was on the cross, remember his words, he said, it is finished. What was finished? This plan, he was, who was he talking to when he says it's finished? To his father. He had accomplished the terms of the plan. Now remember, before he died in John 17, he says, I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Remember that verse in John chapter 17, first few verses? And on the cross, he said that. 
his work, the conditions for the plan of salvation were accomplished by Christ. That's why salvation is now accomplished. That's why you find in the New Testament, all the blessings that God speaks about are in the past tense. Uh, I think Ramon read the verse in Ephesians. All the blessings, God no longer says in the New Testament, I will bless you. He says, I have blessed. Paul says, we have been blessed with Christ. In heaven. We sit with Christ in heavenly places. God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. Blessed us. That's past tense. Why? At this event, this very significant event, was the fulfillment of all the promised blessings from ages past. Now it's a past event. God does not give us any more blessings, brothers and sisters, than is already contained in the life of the Son. There is nothing more that we can obtain if we follow the law more closely or more perfectly. God does not say, oh, wow, well, I'm going to give you a new blessing. Every single blessing received has already been given to humanity in the life of the Son. That's what Jesus was telling his disciples. He says, listen, drink this. This is the New Testament in my blood, in my life. Do we really appreciate or understand what we have? That's what the New Covenant is all about. You know, that's the active ingredient. And sometimes... We talk about these things, some people say, well, brother, you know, you also, you didn't mention obedience, you know, you didn't mention the understanding of certain doctrines, and all these things are good and in their place, but they do not accomplish salvation. These are not the elements of the new covenant. The new covenant has only one thing. It is the life of the Son. The only way you obtain that is by faith. He that has the Son hath love. That's the only active ingredient in the new covenant. If you have that, you will be saved. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, Scripture says you are saved. Mm -hmm. And that will be realized when Christ comes. But you, are, you have salvation already. Too many times we make conditions on the plan of salvation that God has not placed. You have to understand this this way. You have to explain this verse that way. You have to do this. You have to do that. All these things are good. I'm not knocking them out. But salvation is not found in these things. These things are a fruit, a natural fruit of salvation. But you see the distinction, very, very significant and very, very important point. When Jesus spoke, I want to just mention a couple more points here. When Jesus spoke here on the cross and said, it is finished, he spoke as a man, correct? The Bible calls him the last Adam. Very significant term, very significant name we refer to Christ. It's in 1 Corinthians 15. Why is he called the last Adam? Because he is now accomplishing salvation as a man. It was man who lost eternal life. And so Christ had to come as a man. This was part of the promise of him coming as the branch. He would grow up before the Lord as the branch. He would come as a man. And so God's covenant of salvation is with his son as a human being. That's when it was finished. Now, very important point, this salvation covenant is between God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, as a man. And this is why when we believe on Christ, God does not make the same deal with us. We just receive the benefits of the deal and the terms that He has made with the last Adam. We become children of the last Adam. Just as from the first Adam, we do not receive any righteousness. We receive only death. From the last Adam, we receive life, eternal life. Now, this is the assurance. This is the, the crowning assurance. Because when Christ became a man, he did not become a man just to accomplish salvation and then go back to how he was. He took on humanity forever. He remains a man forever. And so this is why it's called the everlasting covenant. His humanity is the assurance and the seal of the plan of salvation. Put it to you this way. We quote this verse in Nahum. Iniquity shall not arise another time. You know that verse? which says there will be no more sin. And we say, you know, because everybody would have learned and nobody would want to choose sin because we've all seen its, its results, not its benefits. We've all seen its, its uh, bad results and nobody would want to choose it. The ultimate assurance that sin will not arise another time and that humanity will not be separated from God again is that Christ is a human. Christ, the Son of God, is a human being. He's the last Adam. He will never be separated from his Father again as a man. And that's the assurance for all humans that we will never ever be separated from God again. Christ as our head, that's why he's referred to as our everlasting father in Isaiah 9, 6. He's the last Adam. He's our everlasting father. His humanity is the assurance that we are one with God forever. Because he's now both son of God and son of man. 
very, very important, the humanity of Christ, incredibly important. And this is why it's his life that is this covenant, this new covenant. <clears throat> so I'll close with this thought because his life in us, brothers and sisters, that's what sanctifies us. That's what our righteousness is to be, his life in us. It's not what we do as far as observing or keeping certain things. And when we talk about this, some people say, look, you know, you didn't mention anything about the Ten Commandments or the Sabbath. And all these things are good and important in their place. But the commandments here, the Ten Commandments were written in stone. God does not even suggest that he will do the same here. We have the commandments written here how? In our heart. You know how God writes them in our heart, in our mind? He doesn't write the same words. Because as many times we think, we just remember. If I memorize the Ten Commandments, that's how it's written in my mind and heart. You know how God writes his commandments or his righteousness in our hearts? The life of the Son. Everything's in it. If you have the life of Christ, if you have Christ Jesus living in you, you automatically have the righteousness of God, which is revealed in the law and in the prophets. This is a written form of God's commandments. Something that is external that you look to and you try and follow. This is not how God wants it in the new covenant. And yet so many times in the new covenant, this is how we relate to God. Isn't that right? We look at a set of rules and instructions or Good things, all good things, but they are something that we try and follow and implement, something external that we try and keep. God's plan in the new covenant is totally different. He says, I'm going to put the life of Christ in you. The life of Christ has already accomplished what I required, what I needed, the standard. There's only one life that God accepts as righteous. It's not yours, it's not mine. No matter how many Sabbaths we keep, no matter how many vegetarian meals we eat, no matter how many long dresses we wear, no matter any of these things, the only life that God accepts is the life of His Son. The question is, do you have that life or not? That's the only way you can find acceptance with God. And so, sadly, many times today we look at how these people related to God through this covenant, and we try and carry that over into here. And we have a very, very serious problem and a situation that exists. So I just wanted to share some of these thoughts as far as the covenants. I hope it made sense to you. If you were blessed by this message, remember to subscribe and share it with others. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Your prayers and support are appreciated. May God richly bless you through His Son, Jesus.